This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we ask a business writer if business reporting these days focuses far too much on the businesses and not enough on consumers or the people who work in them. And we ask the owner of the country's biggest news publisher what she makes of our biggest ever public media outfit that's being built right now. Having an entity that is going to be a real giant and could theoretically move into any market, any medium, would be a real threat to the rest of the industry. Also this week, Argentina were out of this world against the All Blacks last weekend, literally as far as our media were concerned. Buenas noches to our Argentinian viewers. There's huge anticipation as to how the All Blacks perform this evening. But first, how a plan buried in a big bill of tweaks to the tax system made headlines this week, but not for long. That was just a stunning reversal. I mean, we've all got whiplash. What on earth has gone on here? Yeah, I mean, the political management of this has been a mess, whichever way you look at it. That was politics pundit and lobbyist Josie Pagani talking to the energised News Hub Late host Rebecca Wright last Wednesday, the day the government scrapped the plan to collect GST on KiwiSaver fund fees less than one day after it first came to light. And Rebecca Wright wasn't the only one making that joke about whiplash. Yeah, Heidi Akine, the government's top speed tax turnaround, GST on KiwiSaver fees, is off faster than you can say whiplash. But it was the political backlash that killed the idea, driven on by the opposition and media coverage, which raised more big questions about the government's competence. On social media, the pro-government lobbyist and pundit Neil Jones applauded the government's decisive dumping of the policy as smart politics. While on News Hub late on Wednesday, Josie Pagani went on to list all the ways in which this was bad political management. Either they tried to sneak it through with a press release that purported to be all about lifting fringe benefit tax off public transport, or they didn't do the consultation well. This is a complete surprise to them. They didn't expect the, the fund manager, the, the finance sector, to, to respond like this. Um, or, or the third option is that they don't actually have the courage to stand up for something that they actually think would level the playing field over who pays GST. After that, News Hub turned to yet another political pundit, Brigitte Morton, to ask this. Do you think voters will give the government credit for listing and changing tack, or is the damage done? No, because I don't think they were really listening. I mean, really what we've had in the last 24 hours is a lot of media, a lot of concern, but actually, you know, they weren't really out there in the communities, they weren't talking to voters directly that they got this feedback. So really what they've seen is probably realise how much it's going to be damaging for them in the polls. Another example there of how the media and the pundits see us these days as voters and opinion poll fodder rather than citizens, or in this case, just as savers for our retirement. But why would there be public outrage, as News Hub described it, or fury, according to RNZ News, over big financial institutions paying into the national tax take the same way that some smaller ones do for the same KiwiSaver service? Well, the Revenue Minister, David Parker, told reporters this on Wednesday. We reflected on the news media this morning and the furore that we'd created. We thought it's not that important to us. Shortly after, that led RNZ's news like this. The Revenue Minister is blaming misinformation for the furious backlash to a proposal to tax fees on KiwiSaver funds. After which David Parker specifically mentioned misrepresentation by the media. The clarion call against it risks undermining public confidence in KiwiSaver, including misrepresentations that this was a tax on KiwiSaver contributions or their returns, which it never was. But where would they have got that idea? 
well, possibly from the front page of Wednesday's New Zealand Herald, which had the banner headline, Kiwi Saver Tax Grab, above a picture of a piggy bank being shattered by a hammer. Now, that first made the news on Tuesday afternoon, after journalists first spotted the change, buried in a big bill of taxation tweaks that was tabled in Parliament. And the first Herald headline calling it a tax grab appeared in an online story by political reporter Thomas Coughlin, which also included the eye-watering sum of $103 billion. The next day, viewers of the AM show were told this. The government has quietly introduced a $103 billion tax on KiwiSaver. Well, that'll be the effect of it. It'll hit retirement savings by thousands of dollars. National Party leader Christopher Luxon is with us to explain this morning. And after that, the National Party leader didn't talk much about GST, but a lot about the IRD. Uh, and this is a classic. This is now a retirement tax that's on top of all the other taxes that we've had. Income tax, a jobs tax, you know, a, a tenant tax, capital gains tax, ute tax, you know, fuel tax if you're living in Auckland. On Morning Report the same day, RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson said that this was a stark case of politics colliding with principles on an idea that she said actually had merit. And she went on to point out that the media had brought this issue of huge financial significance to public attention when it might otherwise have gone unnoticed. And she said it wasn't the media's fault that the government didn't spot the political risk in this. It would have impacted KiwiSaver balances and David Parker um, took aim for one particular headline um, as opposed to a lot of reporting, which was just actually laying out the facts. In the Herald that same morning, Thomas Coughlin confronted the claim that the paper's tax grab headline the previous day had been misleading. But he insisted no one had said that this was a tax directly on KiwiSaver funds. The money the government planned to take, he said, via fees, would have come from funds nonetheless. Thomas Coughlin also pointed out that the government's own regulator, the Financial Markets Authority, had argued that that would make these funds smaller. In the end, this would affect 15 times more people than Labour's top tax rate or investment property changes. Thomas Coughlin's big conclusion was... The Labour Party needs to regain the public's trust on tax. But after Morning Report's analysis of the fallout the same morning, some RNZ national listeners said the same of the media. Joan says uh, it wasn't a public backlash, it was media hysteria, driven by fund managers with vested interests. Yes, Michael says too, it would be more accurate to say irresponsible media distortions caused the government to backtrack rather than a public backlash. A question from Melissa. She's asking, why aren't we focusing on how the fund managers get away without paying tax? Russell says, I think the question that is being missed here is how much are the people who supply the investment service making? How do we maintain a reasonable tax on their profit? And should there be a flat fee that is regulated? Interesting questions there, but not ones discussed in the media after the proposed change to KiwiSaver was so swiftly struck down by the government responding to the backlash, or gone by lunchtime, according to the media dining out on the debacle. And the same could actually be said, though, of the media coverage once the government had acted. Business Desk's Patrick Smelly said that the proposal had actually been gestating for about five years, and on his podcast The Kaka, independent journalist Bernard Hickey went all the way back to the fourth Labour government to explain why we weren't paying GST on fund fees in the first place. It was a symptom of a larger epic fail, a 30-year epic fail, in not bringing in a capital gains tax to complete our perfect tax system. And we've been dealing with that failure ever since. It was a failure by a Labour policy wonk minister called David, reflected 
by a small failure yesterday by a Labour policy wonk minister called David. However, Bernard Hickey's 30-year horizon on this story jarred with much of the coverage of that KiwiSaver stuff-up this week, which, as Patrick Smelly pointed out, lasted not even as long as the average adult mayfly, which usually lasts a full day before checking out. While the government was the butt of a few jokes this week about that KiwiSaver fail, some also couldn't resist a pun or two in coverage of the story about disrupted toilet paper supplies as well. RNZ said that we could all be caught short by this, and Checkpoint on Wednesday said this. We're in the toilet paper town that could be wiped out by a nasty industrial dispute. But that dispute is, of course, no joke for the people involved. Hayden Donnell now looks at whether businesses and their leaders get the same sort of scrutiny and scepticism as our politicians get in our political coverage. When uh, COVID was hitting, people were dying. The whole mill came together. We all did overtime and so forth because we knew we had to supply the public with the paper. We all got through it. We all got through it, you know, pushing, pushing paper through. And then all we wanted was just a bit of uh, thanks and respect from the company. What do we get? Then they come back with this. That's locked out Kawado paper mill worker Bill talking to Marnie Dunlop on RNZ's Midday Report. Bill went on to say he's supporting two disabled grandkids with complex medical needs and has already had to consult his bank on how he can continue financing their care. He ended with this message for the mill's owner, the Swedish-owned multinational Essity. And you're destroying families, that's what I'm saying to Essity. You know, this is a, you know first it was, it was between... Um, you know, I, I could see their point of view, but, I mean, gee, you know, I'm starting to hurt. Lockouts are a relative rarity in Aotearoa, with the last one coming in 2016, when tallies locked out meat workers in Wairoa. Essity's move prompted the panel's panellist, Alexia Russell, to dredge up some journalistic days of yore in this exchange with Council of Trade Unions President Richard Wagstaff. This is the bad old days, Richard, isn't it? I mean, these are the days when we actually had an industrial affairs reporter who was working full-time on things like lockouts, and we had that latest lockout you're referring to. Some of our reporters didn't even know what a lockout was. Back in those really old days, union membership in New Zealand was around 50%, while today that number has sunk to just under 20%. If workers and bosses are at odds again like in the past, it could partly be because of stories like this. In recent weeks, energy companies Meridian, Mercury and Genesis have shown a combined increase in net profit of $1.3 billion. Meridian's up 55%, Mercury rose 42%, and Genesis is up from a $31 million profit to $221 million. That's almost a 600% increase. That's Simon Dallow on One News listing off some of the eye-watering sums collected by our power gen tailors over the last year. Banks, too, have recorded big profits, while Fletcher Buildings' takings are up 42% to $432 million, a figure that's raised eyebrows given its central role in the recent Jibborg crisis and its refusal to pay back the $68 million it took in wage subsidies. Another business that's been raking it in over the past few years, Purex manufacturer Essity. It posted a $1.5 billion profit globally in 2021, partly on the back of all that COVID-era toilet paper panic buying that had Bill and his colleagues working overtime. 
This wave of sunny profit announcements from our biggest corporates has coincided with Reserve Bank interest rate hikes which hit workers hardest, along with warnings like this one. There is a risk of a wage price spiral developing. So that's when workers seek higher wages to uh, make up for the increase in living costs um, and businesses start to put up prices in anticipation of that high inflation down the track. So in effect, a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's NZIER Principal Economist Christina Lung talking to Heather Duplessy-Allen on News Talk ZB. All this is starting to chafe with a band of pro-worker representatives and commentators. In a column for Stuff, Morgan Godfrey argued workers shouldn't be asked to bear the brunt of inflation while corporations post massive windfall gains. In the Herald, Shane Tapo asked why ever-rising corporate profits don't attract the same lingo about a destructive spiral. On RNZ's Afternoons with Jesse Mulligan, first union researcher Edward Miller made the case that actually corporate profits are a bigger driver of inflation than wages. In the most recent year, so the year to March 2022, um, corporate profits in this country had um, spiked by a pretty staggering 39%. Uh, that's another $20 billion. And at the same time, wages, as in the total wage bill of the country, had only increased by about 11 or $12 billion. Few commentators, though, have been as withering about big business as Rebecca Stevenson of interest.co.nz. When national leader Christopher Luxon told a UK audience last month that he thought New Zealand businesses had gone soft during COVID, she responded with a searing opinion piece agreeing with his premise. It took aim at what she called a rat king of regulatory capture, which keeps business profits high at the expense of just about everyone else, particularly workers and consumers. Here's a snippet. We're being milked for everything we have or could ever aspire to have. So those at the top of this grotesque structure of wealth hoarding, asset capture and feral network of lobbyists and associations can keep getting richer. Stevenson is not your usual polemicist political commentator. She's worked as a business editor for Stuff, Business Desk and The Spin-Off. I asked whether business media could do with adopting a more sceptical stance towards our biggest corporations and whether we need a return to those old days Alexia Russell was talking about, where journalists were specifically assigned to reporting the interests of workers and consumers. Kia ora, Rebecca. Welcome to Media Watch. Thanks for having me. We've got the ST lockout on right now. What lessons do you think there is in the ST lockout for business reporters? It's a really fascinating case, I think, of a huge company really exposing itself and its attitude towards its workers, but it's also quite illuminating. And in some ways, I'm grateful as a consumer to understand the business behind these products. So a really interesting case and example for business reporters to dig into. Probably the tone of the media coverage has generally been pretty pro-worker, But do you think it also throws up some questions for the media? Do whether this speaks to some kind of weakness in our labour laws? What we are often missing in this kind of coverage and in these stories is the context and the depth and linking together these kind of issues that are coming up. And these are not just New Zealand issues. We're seeing a lot of these similar labour issues in the United States, for example, where there's a big push around unionisation. So I think to me that's what's really been missing in this coverage is, and then 
helping us understand, you know, what is really happening in a New Zealand context around worker rights and striking and belonging to unions. Yeah, exactly. And we definitely don't have the same kind of laws, for example, that they have in the United States. You know, worker protections are much, much weaker there. Um, So we do have, you know, a decent sort of suite of laws in New Zealand. And this SED case is going to test a few of them, you know, around the, the legal notification of the strikes, you know, then the resulting lockout of the workers and these other moves that they are now making. It's been interesting, the response to this one. It's almost kind of surprise that this sort of really intense industrial dispute has sprung up. Do you think that the media is not prepared for this kind of aggressive uh, conflict between workers and business? Look, there is a lot of pro-business coverage, and I think, you know, that does have a value. You know, obviously business reporting is going to often report on the views of people running businesses and, you know, bigger businesses and corporations are very well-funded and well-resourced to have people in front of media talking about these issues. And I don't think we're ever going to get away from that. But I think what we really do need to be doing is giving another side and another viewpoint. We had a classic example of that, I think, with the Herald reporting around the Business New Zealand fair pay agreement statements, where they were really allowed to say whatever they thought, and it really wasn't challenged until quite later on to hold people to account. We are there to step into the shoes of the public. Um, So if you are too pro and you're just giving the one side, you're not doing good basic journalism anyway. I guess, are you saying that we should be taking a more sceptical stance towards these businesses like we would politicians or something? Absolutely. We should always, I think, have a sceptical eye, you know, and always be thinking about, yeah, why are people saying what they are saying? But also look at their actions, not the words, which can often be quite in contrast to the things that people will publicly state. It's quite scary taking on businesses and corporations, but I think it's an absolutely critical part of our role is we are meant to hold people to account and businesses to account are no different than politicians. There is a big difference there in that politicians have to answer our questions that are voted in by the public and if they start avoiding scrutiny then there's real consequences. Uh, The same isn't exactly true of businesses so isn't it more of a tricky proposition when the subject of your scrutiny can just tell you to mind your own business and go away? Well, they certainly can do that, but that doesn't mean you don't have to report on them. I mean, I did a piece pretty recently where no one wanted to talk to me, so I wrote about the fact that they didn't want to talk to me. I mean, I think we can scrutinise them without necessarily engaging, but the thing is they do engage a lot. You know, they all belong to, or a lot of them belong to associations and different groups, and they are trying to be involved, and they are influencing, and they are writing submissions, and they are doing things to try and influence policy and influence what's going on and what our government does. I think we need to try and just make them answer. And if they're not going to answer directly, then you need to assemble all of the evidence of the things that they're saying and they're doing and write about them anyway. You know, they are in the game. They're very much playing the game. Otherwise, they wouldn't put all this money behind doing it. So we absolutely need to scrutinise that. And hey, if they don't want to give an interview, fine. But you should absolutely not be deterred by talking about what they're doing and what they're saying to other people, to politicians and the like. You mentioned business 
NZ, the Herald reprinting basically a Business NZ press release about this, the dispute over fair pay agreements. I can think of also some of the coverage of hospitality during uh, the over COVID-19 restrictions or, or sometimes will reprint these perspectives verbatim. Is it because obviously businesses are funding their publications or, or is it perhaps the fact that these corporations, they can afford these dedicated spokespeople and uh, business associations or a bit of all of the above? Yeah, I think it's a bit of all of the above. I think it's, you know, they crank out a lot of collateral and and material. Um, So this stuff is all readily available. You know, it can take a lot more effort and more work to get a cafe worker, to get a restaurant chef, for example. Um, You know, I would always try and push and ask for people to put real people in their stories and to not only look at, again, what these business owners and cafe owners and restaurant owners are saying, but what they're doing. Because as you've pointed out, I think we see a lot of coverage at the moment with uh, work people saying they can't get workers, but then, you know, let's actually analyse, well, what are they offering them? You know, how much is the pay? what is their um, background as employers? Are they good employers? Um, So I think we do need to be much more critical of these stories, but I understand why they're done. As we talk about, you know, political changes, we want to report on the reaction from businesses, but I think we need to go a bit deeper and keep that coverage coming. One thing you've said is, where is the representative for the little guy, the consumer? I guess you'd say the same thing about the worker. Now, there there are people doing that in the media. I think of maybe Matt Nippet at The Herald or Katie Bradford at One News. But do you think there are maybe not enough stories and not enough reporters and editors seeing things through that lens? Well, that particular comment was really directed at our political leaders and my frustration with them and um, Robert McCulloch from the University of Auckland, who questioned why there's not this strong rhetoric in, in, in backing the public view. And as you pointed out, you know, some reporters are doing that, but I would definitely uh, like to see more of it and like to see media go a bit harder on these issues. Um, I think we're in a state of change. You know, the pandemic has been really difficult, and I think it's a really good opportunity now to sort of have a real look at some of these sort of structural issues. And we are meant to stand in the shoes of the public. All stories should be centred around people as much as possible and just, yeah, talking to regular people. You know, you often see the same faces, you know, the same association heads, the same people. Let's not talk to those people so much anymore. Maybe you want to take a statement from them, that's fine. But do we always have to lead with the same people? I don't think so. You know, and it gets to a certain point to me as well. It just feels like, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, And it gets repetitive. It's a bit boring. Uh, One thing that people say pretty often is we used to have industrial relations reporters. Now, do we need a return of these dedicated labour reporters? I think that would be a great idea. I definitely think within a business team or in a wider newsroom, you start to understand the issues really deeply, the um, regulation that's going on, the different players, and you can start to really delve into, you know, and understand and and tell the readers that context and that depth. When I read your piece agreeing sort of tongue-in-cheek with Christopher Lux and New Zealand businesses have gone soft. I was just taken aback at how searing it was about New Zealand businesses. You've made it kind of clear that you think the consumer is being screwed here in terms of our regulatory settings. Should 
more reporters be taking a very sceptical tone towards businesses or even covering some of our regulatory settings as a kind of scandal? Look, I, it is scary and I feel out on a limb. You know, uh, people have told me that uh, they've, I've been upset reading my pieces, made them angry, haven't really had much feedback from the business community. I imagine I'm not hugely popular and I'm not going to many events anymore. Um, but, you know, I think it's imperative for us to do that. You know, I just want to add value as a reporter um, and I just see a real gap there and just a sort of stasis, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm on a bit of a mission to try and shake things up and I would be very grateful if anyone would like to join me. You know, in New Zealand, we have fairly stringent, you know, defamation laws. And as a reporter, you can be held personally liable. You know, these things keep me up at night. And I imagine it's probably similar for other reporters. So I do understand why people perhaps don't want to do it. Um, but I think it does add some value. You know, it gives us an opportunity to really look at some issues in a really hard way. Is this actually how we want things to be? For me, no, I'm not happy with how things are at the moment and I want there to be more fairness. You know, I'm quite inspired, I guess, when I look around and I look at, you know, the young people on TikTok and, you know, the Starbucks workers and how they are really um, taking on their big employer. And I do want better for them and I want better for young New Zealanders as well. So, you know, I've spoken about it quite a lot on Nine to Noon as well over a number of years. The young people in the, in the social media behind it now is really casting a new fresh light on it, which is really quite exciting and it's invigorated me in a, in a big way. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca. Thank you. That was Rebecca Stevenson, business writer at interest.co.nz, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Last week here on Media Watch, we heard about the legislation for the new public media entity to be created by March next year, the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, and concerns that it had been drafted in haste and wasn't quite fit for purpose. Experts, academics and lawyers met in Auckland again this week to draft a joint submission for COITU, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, and the deadline for those submissions is nigh next Thursday, the 8th of September. Now, one of the concerns we heard about last week was the possibility of political influence over the new body if it's set up as an autonomous crown entity, as is proposed. And this week, TBNZ's chief executive, Simon Power, told Stuff the bill was poorly constructed and TBNZ would be advising the committee that Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media needs to be totally free from political influence and seem to be so. But another aspect of the law that the expert group was also worried about was the effect that a beefed-up new public media body might have on the rest of the media. Now, when the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Willie Jackson, introduced the bill to the House recently, he said this. We want to see collaboration. The entity will not work against or in isolation to the rest of the media sector. It has a broader obligation to collaborate. But the Cabinet paper that preceded the bill noted that collaboration with other media providers emerged as a point of tension during the consultations with them. And... It will be important that the legislation makes it clear how the entity should manage these tensions where they occur. However, the bill as it stands now merely requires Aotearoa New Zealand public media to collaborate with Māori media entities and other media entities where this is financially responsible and consistent with the Charter. 
And that's it. Well, among those at the Koitu workshop last week, unsure about what this really means, was Sinead Boucher, the chief executive and owner of the nation's biggest publisher of news and the employer of more journalists than any other, Stuff. The ultimate ambition is to create a new entity rather than just merge two existing services. And that's going to be a not-for-profit entity that can be commercial and also not commercial, can go into any kind of product, market, medium that it chooses, and will be substantially funded by the government as well. That has the potential to be incredibly market-distorting in terms of its presence for the rest of the media ecosystem. Couldn't it, the fact that it's not-for-profit, couldn't that actually give you a bit more room for manoeuvre? I mean, back in the old days, you know, the old management of TV3 used to urge the government to turn TVNZ into a, a not-for-profit uh, broadcaster. Well, I think there's a, there's a difference between not-for-profit and not-commercial, and this entity would be not-for-profit, as in it doesn't have to return any profits to its owner or its shareholder, but it can be commercial, which means it would be out in the market competing with the rest of the media ecosystem for advertising yet coming in with rates that could be significantly different from the rest of the market because it is both well-funded from the government and also not-for-profit. So it can you know, charge what it needs to and put that money back into the organisation. So it's probably the worst possible outcome for us to have something that can be commercial and not commercial in some, um, some areas, probably more funding going into it than the rest of the media sector put together and um, doesn't have to return a profit. It would be a giant entity that would be, um, you know, in a position to compete very hard for the best talent and journalists and um, makes it very hard for the rest of the industry also. In many countries, we compare ourselves to, let's just take a couple like Australia or Canada or something like that. They have joined up public broadcasters that do online radio and telly. The government is trying to create something that's a bit closer to that. Look, I have nothing in principle against um, the, the formation of a public media entity, and I'm a strong believer in strong public media, but I also think that the way that this entity would be formed and the rules in which it operates and distortions in its own funding model um, are really important to get right at the beginning. But for us, it's not the creation of a public media entity per se. I think it's the fact that the bill in its current form is full of gaps and doesn't address some really significant things that probably should be enshrined in legislation rather than better down the road for you know, a board and staff to work out. Are you likely to make a, a submission to the bill as those submissions close uh, later this coming week? If so, will you be actually trying to suggest limits or kind of ring fencing of its activities and the sorts of services it could uh, launch, Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media? Oh, look, absolutely, we'll be making a submission. And for us, that will be focused on risks to both the um, rest of the media sector, but possibly to the success of the media entity itself that uh, could sort of come to life if the legislation is not set up correctly in the first place. So are you actually concerned, though, about without a legislation that restricts it from doing certain things, that it might start parking its tanks on your lawn. Like, for example, this might end up setting up entire newsrooms in territories where, you know, you currently operate, say, for example, Timaru or, um, you know, in Marlborough, where, where you've got newspaper titles and, and uh, a news operation and other people don't currently. 
Yes, absolutely. That's I think that's the sort of thing that is entirely possible. Look, I don't know what future management would want to do in that entity, but the way that the bill is drafted at the moment doesn't put any real guardrails around the interaction with the rest of the media ecosystem. Public interest journalism and high-quality New, New Zealand content is produced by a lot of organisations at the moment, um, including ourselves. We create 100,000 pieces of New Zealand journalism every year. And that's based on having newsrooms in lots of towns and cities around the country. So having an entity that is going to be a real giant come into the market and could theoretically move into any market, any medium, would be a real threat to the rest of the industry. The legislation as it's drafted now does say the new entity will have to collaborate with other media, including yours. Do you understand what what that means or what obligations that might give? If so, what collaboration would actually be good for you? <laughs> well, I think that is a perfect example of a flaw in the way that the um, bill is drafted because collaborate is a very undefined word. It could mean all sorts of things. We couldn't collaborate in an advertising space, for example, because the Commerce Commission would have something to do with it. It would be really anti-competitive. We don't want to collaborate on the producing of content because otherwise you lose that plurality and um, diversity of voices and, and types of journalism, the content in the mix. So it feels like that wording is designed to be a little bit of a acknowledgement that this could be potentially very damaging to the media sector, but that nobody has the exact ideas how to prevent that happening. <laughs> I mean, and what, that's exactly one of the things that we would like to see really clearly defined so that there was more of a do no harm kind of obligation here. But I wonder, though, in terms of self-interest uh, for you at Stuff, you get more public funds now than, than you ever have in the past. These days, your multimedia stuff, uh, things like Stuff Circuit projects can be funded uh, from the public purse. And with the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which runs out next year, you've been able to employ entire new staff and pay for some of your local reporting around the country. So are you afraid that under the new system that over time that might just dry up because the resources will go to the new thing? No, because that type of funding you're talking about coming from New Zealand on air or PIGF represents less than 1% of the money we ourselves invest in journalism and the creation and production of journalism. It's wrong to say that we are funded by the government or supported by the government in that way, that fund, those funds really help us, you know, augment or enhance things we're already doing or want to do. But um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have your, your like high profile stuff circuit team, for example, that made that Fire and Fury documentary. You wouldn't have them on the books, would you, unless you thought you could pay well, for their projects from, from the public purse? No, no. That's not true at all. Um, I hired that team and I hired them um, onto the staff payroll, not onto the payroll in expectation that they would then be funded by New Zealand On Air. That's absolutely not true. And we applied for funding to augment our own investment in that area to allow us to be able to do it. But it's certainly not the case that if we weren't receiving government funding, we wouldn't have those teams at all. That was Sinead Boucher, the owner and chief executive of Stuff. Now, as we mentioned earlier, submissions on the legislation for our new public media entity, the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, close next Thursday, and it will be fascinating to see who's backing the idea and who isn't, and why, or why not.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, the All Blacks cruise to victory against Argentina in Hamilton on Saturday night, soothing the nerves of the players, the coach and the bosses at New Zealand Rugby. To say nothing of the overwrought fans, pundits and commentators who reacted pretty badly in the media in the wake of Los Pumas' historic win in Christchurch seven days earlier. Fans online also weighing in on the All Blacks fan pages. When I die, I want the All Blacks to be my pallbearers so they can let me down one last time. Now that's not a bad gallows gag, though News Hub's Mitch McCann had a real sense of humour failure about that on Twitter. The All Blacks need to get better. But if you post stuff like this online, you are a shit fan. But News Hub's Juliet Speedy was seeing the funny side of viewers being let down by Sky TV's notoriously wobbly under pressure mobile streaming service. Some Sky Sport fans missed the game altogether. Many angry fans were messaging Sky online last night saying they were having major trouble with the Sky Sport Now app after it went through a recent upgrade. They were talking of glitches, buffering and unavailable content. But look, Simon, their words that some may have also used to describe the All Blacks' performance in the second half. So perhaps it was Sky Sport doing those fans a favour. And those who did see the game on TV heard Sky's guy Justin Marshall greet them like this. Buenas noches to our Argentinian viewers. Well, both teams are rolling into this test match off excellent wins. There's huge anticipation as to how the All Blacks perform this evening. Well, viewers who were having a Buenos Noches in Buenos Aires and beyond got the message there that they weren't really the focus of the coverage from here. Mind you, even if you don't speak any Spanish, their TV coverage sounded like much more fun. I took a look at that on Midweek Media Watch this week, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and also at how the media over there had a bit more fun with our media's mood swings. That's on our webpage or our podcast feed if you missed it. But after six defeats in the last eight games, All Blacks fans didn't seem to have the energy to vent on Sports Talkback the day after. However, on SENZ Radio, sportscaster Mark Watson left nothing behind in the studio, trying to wind up fans with a bit of Jeff Buckley in the background. A funeral today. Got to say, I'm heartbroken. And having set out a stall like that, Mark Watson set out a sort of manifesto personally addressed to Ian Foster. Ian, you need to go. Resign. We lost to Argentina, man. Now, after almost 10 minutes at that pitch, Mark Watson scared SENZ listeners with this claim. We don't win this next Rugby World Cup. We have to then go another four years, which will mean 12 years. 12 years without winning it. But on News Talk ZB's Sunday Sport, caller Kelvin said that was rubbish. We could have a World Cup one within a couple of months here. I absolutely enjoyed the rugby test match yesterday. And actually, I'm talking about the women's one, the only one. I'm looking forward to the World Rugby Cup in 41 days' time. And Kelvin wasn't the only caller that day pointing out that one national rugby side did actually win last weekend. Bugger the All Blacks, what about the women? And I'm going from my allegiance to the All Blacks to the women. If you want to throw your weight behind the, the Black Ferns, absolutely, because we've got a World Cup coming up. Indeed we do, and by that time, hopefully, there will be a bit more in the media about that rather than the Groundhog Day reactions to the men's side losing again. 
Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.